Welcome back, everybody. We are now moving on to a segment I like to call Required Reading. Yes, I, um, what I'm going to do, and maybe we'll Andrew hopefully do as well, is, uh... You, you can't know, make keep... me. Oh, I could try. I have fingers. I can tickle you into submission. He's going to try to make me read books. <laughs> wow, I'm going to make Andrew read books? What a concept. <laughs> Andrew, you probably read more books than I do. Yes, but no one tells me what to do. But Jack but has read is, a is, very interesting book that's lately. That's right. What I would like to talk about basically are certain books about movies, um, about even actors or directors that I find kind of interesting to uh, to tell you about. And the first book in that series that I'd like to discuss briefly is uh, uh, probably the best book I read last year, which is called The Disaster Artist. The Disaster Artist, about now, the making of the worst movie of all time. That's the room. Right. The room. Which uh, now, if you now you may have heard of this movie, even if you haven't seen the movie, uh, just by the cult that has kind of built around the film's writer, director, star, producer, and executive producer. If he was, if he composed the score to the film, he would be the anti-chaplain. Yes. Hi. Can I help you? Yeah. Can I have a dozen red roses, please? Oh, hi, Johnny. I didn't know it was you. Here you go. That's me. How much is it? It'll be $18. Here you go. Keep the change. Hi, doggy. You're my favorite customer. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. The point is, the book is actually written by one of the actors in the movie, and he also was one of the producers as well, uh, this guy Greg Sestero, who, if you've seen the movie, he plays Mark. Um, oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. Yes, that Mark. Um, he uh, actually, the book is kind of about two things in a way, but they kind of intersect with each other. I mean, the first thing is, again, about the making of The Room, how the actual production of it went along, uh, you know, um, if not day-to-day, then kind of a general idea of how a lot of things went on in the making of it. And then this it kind of goes back and forth, chapter to chapter, between the making of The Room and how this guy Greg became friends with Tommy Wiseau which happened uh, a few years before The Room, and kind of the charting of that friendship, and how that actually kind of, in a, in a sense, sort of influenced The Room itself. Um, and how, basically, this guy Greg met Tommy at, a, uh, uh, at like an acting class, and Tommy Wiseau performed a scene from Streetcar Named Desire, and did it so absolutely terribly that... You know, and yet put all of his kind of heart and soul into it <laughs> <laughs> as much as Tommy Wiseau can. That this guy Greg was like, man, I gotta do a scene with this guy. I don't know what's gonna happen, but that something will happen. Yes, that description basically describes the room in a nutshell. Kind it's of, yeah. the most ineptly performed but most heart-filled movie. Yeah, the thing about the room is that, in, in all manner of speaking, it's a terrible film. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's. In its construction and how the director, um, and the book talks about this too a little bit, that how he shot the film on film in 35mm and on HD digital because he didn't know the difference between film and digital cameras. To be fair, I don't know the difference between film and digital. Yeah, but you're not trying to make a movie like he did. Yes. Um, and also... Take that, um, Tommy Wiseau. And, you know, the film, the book tries to go a little bit into not just some of the more legendary aspects of the movie, the fact that it was a five, six million dollar budgeted film 
and nobody could really tell where the money came from. So that was one thing. <laughs> or the fact that even though Tommy Wiseau actually had a lot of money in terms of like real estate and even businesses, which is revealed later in the book and kind of comes as a surprise to Greg in San Francisco, they decided to shoot the film in Los Angeles on like green on on backdrops like in a, in a studio like all the scenes when you watch the movie on top of the roof uh they look like they're green screened and that's because they are because instead <laughs> of going onto a roof and shooting a movie like any other independent filmmaker would he decided and this is actually a quote from the book you know we know mickey mouse that's a phrase he uses often is like we know mickey mouse this in other words it's a way of saying like we're not going to do this in any kind of cheap way. We're going to go all out. And the book is just a fascinating look at this complex guy who is kind of like what I would call, like what George Carlin described about some people. Like he had a book about how some people are really stupid, but then also people are really full of shit. But also people are really nuts. This guy is all three. He is stupid, he is full of shit, and he is nuts. Wow. And yet... He is this really, you know, and yet this guy, Greg, also makes it, again, a book about friendship. It's, in a weird way, it almost has, it reminds me a little bit like The Great Gatsby or something in terms of movie <laughs> books. <laughs> you know, how The Great Gatsby is, you know, from the point of view of this guy who comes into this, you know, society. He, he walks onto this stage, which, with, which has a much bigger story than him. Yes. And... Yeah, and he finds this guy who like, and he is basically Tommy Wiseau is the Gatsby of this story. In other words, he's this mystery man who has like this mystery past, and yet the two be kind of become close friends. Do we ever get a look into Tommy Tommy Wiseau's real past? There is kind of a suggestion of it. Like there's this really uh, tr like wonderful chapter where like Greg kind of describes this story about this boy who may who. Who, well, imagine this guy, this kid grew up in this nondescript European country, and then he came to France. Belgium. And, well, uh, <laughs> they don't say where exactly. Belgium and is the he... least descript European country. Hmm, maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> unless you're talking about one of, like, the Eastern European ones that kind of blend together. Um, Keep going. Yeah, okay, thank you. And then about how he actually he was in France for a while, and then he came to New Orleans... And this one thing led to the other. And so you get a sense that maybe this is what his background was, but they never say for sure. Like, it's it's strongly suggested that this is how, this is where Tommy Wiseau came from, to this author's knowledge. I yes. Mean, the thing is, what's fascinating is that, again, this guy is kind of Tommy Wiseau's best friend through a lot of the early years. And he actually is even there when... Tommy Wiseau, the early years. Yeah, well, that's partly what this is. It's a mix of that... The story of friendship, which also has kind of a relation to, um, I don't know if you've ever heard or seen the movie, uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley. I have not seen that yet. Yeah, well, that's also kind of like about, you know, what if a guy kind of reinvents himself to be this particular thing. Um, of course, Tommy Wiseau's answer whenever somebody asked where he came from was, you know, I'm from New Orleans, which... <laughs> Look at that accent. How could you not believe that, right? Yes. Um, he is Creole the, down to the, the barrel. book is also... It's it's very heart... Again, it's very heartfelt. I keep using that word, but I can't have another word to describe it. But it's also very, very funny. There are just right. so many things, again, about just how this guy, Greg, witnesses this for, kind of weird force of nature that is Tommy Wiseau day-to-day -day that is just 
He is like a very goofy looking sphinx. Yes. <laughs> and at the same time you kinda of see what happens when this guy is trying is making a movie and you know, nobody believes that he'll actually finish it, of course. Um yeah. and you know, he you know, lots of crew members quit or, you know, get into, you know, fights with Tommy Wiseau because they just you know, the way that he was handling the production was really haphazard where on the one hand, he had all this money, but on the other hand, he wouldn't pay people on time. Like, things like that would happen. And then, uh, like, he, um, you know, he didn't know ever know where to put the camera. Um, at, you know, he also was, you know, juggling, again, being a director and a producer and an actor. And, like, that whole scene, uh, you know, he goes up onto the roof, and he's like, That is true. It is not bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Well, hi, Mark. <laughs> That took 32 takes. Uh, <laughs> he could not get the line right. Yeah. <laughs> so again, you have lots of anecdotes like that, but it actually has a really strong narrative. And so on the one hand, you get this story about how the worst movie ever made got made. On the other hand, you also have this story about friendship that gives it you know, a good bedrock of being about something else as well and it's a human interest it's about friendship and it's about something else there you go (laughs) so what i wanted to also fold this into was you wanted to actually kind of mention about how like bad movies have have kind of become important over time well i don't think necessarily we've just understood the importance of bad movies i mean bad movies have been around ever since there have been movies oh sure you know you know reefer madness was you know in the 1930s well yeah uh, <laughs> Although that's actually kind of a lot of fun, even though it's pretty terrible. Yeah, well, an ironically good movie is still not a good movie. Uh, yes. But what we have to think about is the fact that not every movie is going to be the great movie. Yeah. I mean, by simple law of averages, there are going to be terrible movies, and you can't stop that. But bad movies are still important because Tommy, uh, let's think about what Tommy Wiseau did. He uh-huh. decided to make a movie with no experience. Yeah. Uh, with, he had some money apparently, but from aside from that, mystery benefactor. Right. Uh, but whatever, wherever the money came from, uh, having $15 million is not, does not make you a movie. And there have been movies that have spent probably twice as much that never got off the ground. I mean, Orson Welles basically once, you know, he kind of legendarily said that, you know... Is this a quote from Ed Wood? I don't know if this was in Ed Wood. Okay. Quoting what, what I once heard him say is that, I mean... You, you heard Orson Welles say this? I went back in time. Um, I, was, I, well, I was one year old when he died, so I must have. Yes. Um, <laughs> no. He uh, once said that, you know, what a lot of the technical things about making a movie you can learn in, like, a few hours. If right. you really have the right person telling you what to do, which is how he did on Citizen Kane, he was basically taught, all right, this is what you do with the camera, this is what you do with this or that, with staging. It's what you actually put into the making of it that's more difficult. The yes. actual talent part. But I want to give Tommy Wiseau a little bit of credit, because oh, sure. he set up he's to... he's done something that, very, that a relatively small number of people have done. He's put together a movie from scratch. And even though he doesn't know the difference between digital and film, he still got a group of people to make a film. Yes. And whether he's infamous for it or whether he's just regular famous or not, you have mm-hmm. to give him credit for doing that. Yeah. And I think, and in a way that's admirable. Mm-hmm. 
you can't just dismiss him offhand. I mean, he's no. he's goofy and he's an, an mean, inept that, filmmaker, yeah. but he's still a filmmaker. Uh, I guess, well, in the matters. Well, <laughs> no, no, I guess in, he did in, make a movie. He, I mean, we could also talk about that. I mean, there are other directors. He wasn't really the first one to kind of make, like, he, you know, he, you know, it's nothing to laugh at as someone who has made a movie. I can tell you, having made a movie is a lot of hard work. Yes, I, a lot of, you know, I've worked on movies money. with you. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, seeing that's why it, you're not allowed in my house anymore. I know. <laughs> I'm a but, jerk. But the point is, I mean, I even look back to um, a couple of, uh, or at least one example, that just you know, is always in my mind is. Uh, uh, Manos, The Hands of Fate. Yes. Which is, again, that's also another contender for worst film ever made. Right, that's that that's a, a cult film for its horribleness as well. That's a cult film. The guy who made that movie is also kind of legendary in small circles. Not as much to the extent of Tommy Wiseau. Right. Because Tommy Wiseau, since he's kind of newer, and he made a movie in the past several years, and that kind of grew its own cult. This guy, though, Hal Warren, was basically a fertilizer salesman who on a bet said, I can make a movie. Yeah. And so he got people together. He got like an 8mm camera or something, and he made a, a complete piece of crap. Yes, but he made which a, we, none of us would know about if it weren't for another thing, but we'll get to that later. Yes, but you could still say, as terrible as Manos is, he did make a movie. Yes, yeah. and I, I think, and that's another thing that we have to look about at with bad movies. There, yeah. There are... I, I try to think of movies, there's a certain scale that I have for terribleness. Hmm. At, like, I think it's like a four-tier system. Like, there are the really great movies that yeah. we've just talked about in our top five. And then there's just kind of the middling movies that are just, you know, they're yeah. there. You can like them if you want. You might have your own special reason for liking them. Uh, but it's the vast majority of movies. And then there, and are, there, there are different categories of that, too. Like, yeah, there, are I, very, there are very good movies that are just shy of greatness. There are good movies that have some really good stuff and some really bad stuff. Yeah, and there are movies with obvious flaws, but still have, but still have merit. Sure. You know, Pacific Rim. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So those are the first tiers. There, there's the first tier is great. The other, the second tier is good. The third tier is the bad stuff, the amusingly bad stuff. Uh, I think Manos would fit into this. Probably Monster a Go Go. You know, really reaching back, and I think also the room fits in this category, uh, where or of course you know the king of that stuff, Ed, Ed Wood. Yes, Ed Wood though is an, is another thing we have to look at uh, too. Uh, but really, at the bottom, even lower than the worst of the worst, are the simply bad movies. And what separates them from the so bad it's good movies is is cynicism. I've talked to you about cynicism in movie making. Yeah, and there comes a point where you can look where after you've watched a movie, after you've watched a movie for a while, after you've watched you, you movies for a while, there you go. You can tell when people are phoning it in, not yeah. necessarily just not necessarily actors or you know, uh, the directors do or it di too. Directors do it too, but also writers. Yeah, and there are films that simply exist because people are trying to make a buck. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's I'll... nothing wrong with making money off of cinema. It's a business. I'm not going to be an idealist and pretend that cinema is all about art and everything. Yeah. You, do, you should you should make money. Uh, but there comes a time... But there are some films that are defined by their ability to make money and by nothing else. 
Yeah. You and I both know what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, but, uh, and you, and the problem, and you can recognize cynicism, and yeah. that's even lower yes. than anything that well, Tommy Wiseau has made. Well, well, you can think about, say, um, for example, a number of, like, these, uh, there's been kind of a wave of these parody movies over the past yes. couple of years. You know, Friedberg and Seltzer are kind of the poster child for that, and, uh, Poster children, whatever you say. Yes. But um, but movies like that, they are just there simply because we're gonna get in there an opening weekend. We're gonna get a bunch of these, you know, stupid thirteen-year-old kids who don't know any better. And I was at one time one of these kids. I also was stupid. You know, I I I saw um like the first scary movie or whatever it was, and I thought it was funny. But by now, it's gotten to the point where they're not even trying. They 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 get lazy. And that's what's really infuriating with the movie, especially, at least in a weird way with the room, it you know that there there's a lot of stuff that makes you cringe. There's a lot of stuff that is just horribly laughable, but it's all kind of of a piece. You can see the person that's making it, um, and maybe Thomas So really wanted to make a lot of money. Maybe he was out to be the new Orson Welles. I don't know, but there is a difference between that and simply going in to make something and do all these easy references to other movies and make a buck like that. Like yes. That can get especially infuriating. Yeah. What sets Tommy Wiseau apart, what makes movies so bad they're good, is this idea that I've heard on the Idea Idea Channel. Have you, have, do you watch Ideal, Idea Channel? Idea Channel. Idea Channel idea at Kia all. Channel? No, not the one with the <laughs> Allen wrenches. Idea Channel. They no. talked about so, movies that are so bad they're good. And what sets those apart from just simply bad movies is sincerity. Mm. You have to believe that the crappy stuff you're doing is good. Maybe yeah. it's even being delusional. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can be deluded into thinking your movie yeah. is great, but just so long as you think it's great, you have that element of sincerity. Exactly. And that's what pushes the room uh, beyond uh, being exploited there, or a, being a cash-in. There's a reason why people keep going back and back again and again to watch the movie why i've seen it a few times and i've even you know there's even now the cult of seeing the movie live in a theater which uh, i don't know if you know this but in new york city every i think it's the first saturday of every month they play the room at midnight and i've gone to um i went maybe four and a half years ago to see the movie at a midnight screening. And this was not too long after seeing the movie for the first time. Right. And, you know, you had an audience full of these rabid room fans who knew the movie by heart, who all yelled out all of the famous lines <laughs> at the same time. And you had even really weird It's things. official. I have breast cancer. <laughs> you kind of misquoted it. I know. Yeah. it's I, I got the results back. I definitely have breast cancer. It, it doesn't matter. It's never mentioned again. <laughs> no, no, but it's the definitely have breast cancer part that yes. makes it funny. Uh, um, and it was an interesting experience for a couple of reasons. I mean, the one thing that I should say is that I don't think I'll ever go back to see it again in a theater. Yeah. Because it was a fun experience, but there were also some downsides to it. Um, there were The audience had, I don't know if this is for every screening of The Room, but the one that I went to was filled with a lot of these kind of jog asshole types who were kind of like yelling at the screen at like the the Lisa character, like the cheese a slot, the cheese a bitch, 
it was almost like the character, the, the audience were in relation to the characters of like the misogynistic they, nature of the They movie. were projecting something on they to were projecting that something. character it that a, is, it was rather unhealthy. It was an ugly audience in that respect. The other thing, too, um, and I don't know if... I mean, that might have just been the, the thing we're going through. Not all Room fans are obviously like this, but... No, no, they're not. Some people are, you know, nice people. Um, Some people are nice people. You heard, heard it here first. But, yeah. No, 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 no but, um, and the one other thing, too, is that, um, and, you know, like, you, you know, um, you go to certain cult screens like Rocky Horror, and they have kind of traditions and stuff like this, but, like, with The Room... Um, I don't know if you, you, I know it's been a long time since, since you've seen the movie. Yeah. But on that magical is, night. Yes, that magical night we watched The Room and After Last Season. And we could talk about After Last Season in a second if you want, but there's a, in the living room set of the movie, um, you the have. The forks. Well, no, not the fork. Oh. There's a picture of a spoon. <laughs> and because of this, when you go to a screening of The Room, all these people bring plastic spoons with them. <laughs> And they fling plastic spoons in the audience. And where I was, I was kind of more in the lower part. There was right. like there was a theater where it actually had a balcony, and people kept flinging spoons, and I kept getting hit in the head with yeah. plastic spoons. So that's yeah, something that's... I don't have to put up with. And the other thing too is because so many people are talking and so many people are loud. Um, again, you know, the room is a fun movie to watch with a crowd. It's fun to watch but, with friends. But it's better to watch with friends. It's better to watch in, like, your living room and kind of, like, in a more controlled environment where you can kind of tell what's going on as opposed to everybody screaming and hollering. It was almost like the equivalent of being in the movie theater. In, like, speaking of Ed Wood, and that scene Ed Wood when they go to the premiere of Bride of the Monster. Yeah. And it's filled with, like, raucous people. Yes. You know, and they can't even get in there. It was like that. Oh. Uh, so... But, and speaking what... of best ways to see bad movies, we have to get into the entire parody. Not necessarily parody, but the uh, the commentary, the commentary movement f- that has grown around bad movies. Yes, we, I mean, we are obviously talking about Mystery Science Theater yeah. and Rift Tracks. Yeah, I mean, Mystery Science Theater, uh, that was originally more... that like it's in, Because it started out on the Comedy Channel, Comedy Central, back in the 90s. It eventually went to the Sci-Fi Channel, but that's where I watched it. Right. And we do... I don't want to say we should be thankful to bad movies, but there is something I feel started in that. Yeah, and it's kind of spread out Something into, very important. Yeah, it's spread out into the internet in general in a lot of ways. And when yes. you watch movie reviewers, that's basically what... Um, that's that's the bread and butter for, for internet film For the nostalgia critic. Nostalgia critic. For the cinema yeah. snob, for people like that. Their bread and butter is now they do it a little bit differently. Usually, everybody does it a little bit differently. Yeah, but the whole but, idea is that hey, we're gonna watch this movie, and we might do running commentary through it. We might maybe talk. We maybe we show a clip and then talk about it and repeat that process. Yeah. But yeah, that started with the rip tracks guys for sure, and that sort of group. Um, now, do you think that there's any downside though to that? I don't know. Like, I've do always looked. I've always seen it. I. I've never really looked for a for a downside, but I've always seen it as sort of a Frankenstein process where you take something that's dead, a, mm. a horrible movie, and you've right. given it life. You, yeah, I <laughs> guess you could say that. You, uh, Manos, the Hands of Fate would not... Nobody would, would know that No exists. one would know it existed. And they it, didn't even know it existed. They, they, oh, there, was like a, there was like a documentary on the DVD for the Manos, the Hands of Fate 
Mystery Science Theater version, but they talked about, like, no, we got this thing in the mail. We were like, man, that's the hands of fate. It was as if it came from, like, the movie gods or something yes. like that. <laughs> it came from Santa Claus. And they popped it on. They're like, what the hell is this? And you even hear it when you're watching, when you watch that movie with the in the original MST3K commentary. Yeah. At times, they're kind of just sitting back and being like, do something! Yes, exactly. Do something. Yeah. Um, but what you're talking about, though, it's interesting how, since Rift Tracks has come around, you can actually kind of tell, though, how they sometimes respond to movies. I mean, in Rift Tracks now, they even do good movies. Like, they've read, yes. like, The War of the Rings and other The Harry Potter series, yes. which is relatively solid all the way yeah, through. Yeah, and um, I think they even reviewed the original Star Wars trilogy as well. Um, but, like... They also did, um, you know, like the Twilight movies and also Batman Robin. Well so, deserved. And there was actually, if you ever watch, and I haven't watched the full Batman Robin Rift Tracks commentary, but I've heard that there's actually a point where they actually stop talking and they just are at a loss for words to come <laughs> up with anything. And that's actually a case where you could maybe say that they've come across that more cynical badness. They've, you know, Batman and Robin was not a movie that had any real purpose to be made except for making money. Yeah. And, you know, for putting more coins in Schwarzenegger's pocket. Oh, don't um, forget George Clooney. Well, the Bat Nipples. Oh. <laughs> you can't forget the Bat Nipples. This is um, why Superman works alone. <laughs> I actually now always remember the Rift Tracks line that follows that. It's like, this is why Superman works alone. I thought it was because of his crippling Asperger's syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) But I've always seen it as giving life to something that would otherwise be lifeless. I mean, you can watch a bad... You can watch a bad movie because it's bad, because it can't be bad. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, Rocky Horror, which I haven't seen. I'll admit it. Uh, I And The Room. You can watch certain bad movies, Plan 9 from Outer Space... A lot of Ed Wood films, because so bad it's good existed before there before people started mocking films openly. Yeah, I mean, no, I think that there for me there is the possible danger of like, you know, too much irony or something. Maybe, but again, yeah. But again, a lot of it comes down too is to the fact that you're actually being funny too with it. I mean, the thing with the yeah, Rick I, guys is they are like professional comedians. They come up with quip after quip. So that when you're in like a riff track screening, uh, you're laughing your head off, and it's not always you know it might be because of the movie itself, but it's also because they're just clever comedians. Yes. Now, now it's like you know you could also get you know you could try to have like a riff track experience, and it's not good just because the people commenting on it are not funny. Right. I but you could watch movies that were so, that are so bad they're good by themselves, but there are movies that are just simply bad. Oh sure, yeah. That you, you just that are unwatchable, too. and not oh, yeah. necessarily because they're cynical, like I talked about, but just because they are boring. We well, could we bring that back around to after last season? Yes, after last season, which or may you, or may not have been a scam. Or you know what? Could also now we could talk. Let's before I forget though. Some of the Asylum movies, I think, are also That's, fall under that category. I think the Asylum movies fall under cynical. Films. Yeah, I, they're basically made to tag to tag along these big budget releases sure. to make money off of people also, who 
I don't know actually who's seeing Asylum movies. How are they making money? <laughs> well, it's funny. I wonder how they're still being made too, because the whole idea with them was um, back when Blockbuster was still around, you would go into Blockbuster and you'd see like a bunch of titles for I don't know War of the Worlds two. Yes. Or uh, something like that. Or um, that's or Abraham Lincoln Zombie Hunter, which yeah. I think we watched. We, we watched that. The reason I bring that up is, though, I mean, yeah, they're cynical, but they're also dull a lot of the time, too. They're well, trying to be funny, and maybe occasionally they are, but they're also you know, not well-put-together movies. But the whole sense. reason they exist is because they're tr- they are knockoffs. Yeah. And they're trying to make money by picking backing on these bigger releases. That's why you had Atlantic Rim... Snakes on a train. <laughs> it's like getting yeah. the Mexican version of a famous uh, superhero sure. figure. Now, and now, to be fair, though, this actually isn't a new phenomenon, too. In fact, I mean, we you know we can praise Roger Corman in a way as being like kind of like a B movie icon or whatever. You can making, praise him. Well, sure. <laughs> no, but he actually made a few legitimately good movies here and there. All right. Like some of his Edward, like his Edgar Allan Poe movies and stuff, but he actually he and some of his ilk were kind of like the start of that. Like they were they would make these knockoff movies in like you know back in the day. You know you even had you know sometimes occasionally get a good movie like uh, like the original Piranha, which is a knockoff of Jaws. And right. Jaws is probably a knockoff of something that was made before that. So there are always these knockoffs, but somehow over time, now today these knockoffs are like just even worse. Well, think about Sharknado. That that's the ultimate though. That's where someone tried to make a that's movie that was so bad of Yeah. And in that case, I saw I don't know if I've seen all of Sharknado or maybe I saw part of that or maybe it was even Sharknado 2, the next one. See, that is the height of cynicism. <laughs> Does it get any worse than that? And it's like I'm going to I'm we're going to fill this with celebrity cameos and Maybe they're having fun, but it's not fun for me. No. And it's not fun for you. Now, I know I know we got a little track, but talking but bring that back in a way to after last season. That's a kind of movie where you wonder what the hell was going on on yeah. any level. You know I'm at, not I'm not quite sure where it fits in. I mean it has That's these, an anomaly. It has like nineties computer graphics you'd be able to get on a desktop. Yeah. Uh you Oh now, man! For those and of you who it's haven't... got this crazy script that where the plot went nowhere. I mean, is it's not plot? like it's not like Mulholland Drive where the plot is ambiguous. It I don't after know last where the season just had a plot that didn't go anywhere. At least when you have an ambiguous plot, you go somewhere. You're somewhere different from where you started. You don't know where you are, that... but you know that you're not where you started. That film is a toxic combination of a lot of things. It's deadly dull through a yes. lot of it. It's technically incompetent in a lot of ways yes. like you could light the sets of that movie better and you've never lit anything on gee that thanks scale. jack <laughs> that movie was so terrible even you could do better andrew <laughs> uh, that, even I, andrew's I, not this stupid i'm the king of backhanded compliments what can i say um sorry but the point is though that movie has so many wrong things and also that's I would love to find out the the story behind that because that's another film where that's that, another film that has a story behind it. There is a five million dollar budget in that movie. The, Does that look like a five million dollar movie? None of that, that movie, movie is, went up on the screen. That's a, none that's of that money went on the screen. And not only that, like you hear the story. I mean, I've heard the story too by um, when I think it was uh, 
long ago when the Spill guys talked about the movie. Um, yeah, I remember that, them talking about it in like their year's worst. Well, uh, Carlisle. Did, yeah. Uh, or Cargill, as he's called now. He, um... He's like Prince. About, <laughs> yes. Um, apparently the movie was shipped to, like, a few theaters across the country. And by a few, we mean, like, less than ten. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it just barely qualified as a legitimate theatrical release. Yeah, because some of the other guys took issue with him putting it at number one. Yeah. But it, it technically got a theatrical release. It got release, a theatrical so. release, and then what the company did that put out the movie, they, instead of, like, paying for the cost of having, like, the film print sent back to them, which is usually what happens... They actually instructed the movie theaters to burn the prints, which would make it cheaper <laughs> yes. somehow. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to dare yourself, um, you could check out this movie. Um, uh, just just soften the blow with another movie. By far, <laughs> it's prob- it's the worst movie I've ever seen. I oh, still man. think it's on that in that spot. I don't know if it's the worst movie I've ever seen, but that's probably because it was so dull I don't really remember it. Well, that's the thing. A lot of the worst movies we see, you know, we might not remember them that much. Or... Maybe we'll remember them too well. I mean, uh, that's that's a that's a good question. Is a is a bad movie one that you don't remember or one that you can't forget? That that is a good question. I mean, because I, because I mean, I mean, we've seen so many bad movies. Probably a lot of them end up kind of blending in together. Yeah, like that one with the neon colored future. What? See, I barely remember <laughs> that film. I don't even remember what the the, the name was. Colored future. It was like on Netflix, and we were looking for a movie to watch. I know what you're talking about. And there was a bomb in somebody's yes. body that yes. was made it of was an from, organ. Was, I, I actually have reviewed the movies, and it's somewhere on my blog, but I don't remember the title. Yeah, but I don't remember anything about it, except for that one little blurb that was on the next Netflix account that said, The Neon Colored Future. Yes. And that's probably why we chose it, because yes. it had that. And then we were horrified by the results. Yeah. But, but I mean, what is what is the worst thing? A movie that you that's so unmemorable that you don't for, that you don't remember, or one that's so offensive you can't forget? I think it depends on the person. I mean, I um, I get offended sometimes when a movie just kind of pisses me off, frankly. Like, and you know, and it starts out really promising, and then it angers me in a way that that can sometimes be a really bad movie. Like, I. And this sounds a little bit crazy, but um, not to go on too long with this conversation, but um, a year, a couple years ago, I saw the movie Birth of a Nation for okay. the first time. Now, this movie, you know, it's a it's a three-hour movie, and the first half of the movie is actually pretty good. It's like a tale of um, the, you know, the Civil War, and it actually, it tells it from, in large part, from the Confederacy side, but it doesn't, you know, it tells it fairly straightforward it tells like the story of this family and it's not romanticized or not too much no and the battle scenes are really well filmed i mean it was basically the first movie okay in a way in like in this kind of scale um in american history um but then and like the, the end of the first act it's kind of like the movie's in two acts really and the end of the first act is lincoln is assassinated and you have the end of the civil war the second half of the movie is set during reconstruction and it's where all of a sudden you get, like, all black people are out to rape your daughters and take over civilization. And we must get the yes, I'd say that's offensive involved to save us all. Yeah. So that is where it's like, you know how to make a movie, but you're using it to kind of an evil purpose. Yes. Um, in a way, you could 
in a sense, kind of, I know that you call him more of a cynical filmmaker, but I think sometimes, I think Michael Bay could be called kind of like an evil director in a way, where he well, knows, he technically has the capability and know-how to shoot a movie. He knows how to kind of move a camera around, sometimes a little too much and too fast, and yet he uses it for just, you know, total garbage reasons. Well, I'd hesitate to call Michael Bay evil. Uh, I'd I'm, I don't have a high opinion, <laughs> but yeah, it's certainly something to think about. So that was Michael Bay, I'm not saying you're evil, but uh, you can do better. Yeah. But, but uh, the point is, though, yeah. So there are a lot of bad movies, and I think it really. But bad on movies, person. I think it's like when leaves fall off a tree, they rot and they decompose and they turn into soil. Something grows out of that, and what? And maybe that's, and I think. Maybe that's bad, but I think mostly it's good. It's the circle of life. Circle of life for film. <laughs> I think... Movies often... Uh, see, the thing is with movies, something I should also mention, a lot of times a movie won't have a second life. Sometimes a movie comes out and that's it. People may go back to it and now, you know, thanks to IMDb, you can look up any movie you want. Thanks to Netflix, you can have almost any movie. Almost. Sometimes they Well, that's why I said almost. Go. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes it's hard for a movie to have any kind of life after it's first put out. Sometimes a movie comes out and that's it, you know. But for a movie to have a second life, for you to, for it to get like a Plan Nine or a Room or um, or I, I don't know, I could Manos. something else or Manos, you know, um, it needs to have that extra something in a way. It needs to ha- be special, even though it's special in its terribleness, if that makes right. sense. I mean, the room has certainly earned its its second life and probably third and fourth. Yes. Uh, and now, thanks to the disaster artist, we understand a little bit more about its creator, and we go, uh, and maybe we can understand it a bit more. Exactly. That it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is the way it is for a reason. Yeah, and probably it, it, uh, that's what we can learn about to Tommy Wiseau where, as well. And to the point where now they're even making like to just end this conversation with this that. James Franco is going to play Tommy Wiseau in a movie based on the book of the Disaster Artist. All right, that that sounds exciting. So ultimately, the irony is the worst movie ever could make a good movie. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what we learned from Ed Wood. So now, moving on, we have our final segment for the night. We don't have a title for it. Let's come up with a title really fast. Um, what's going to go on next week? No, we got to pitch in the end. Oh, yes, that will come later. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> all right. Thanks, Jack. Right, anyway. Up there. Anyway, so this is our last real segment. Um, why don't you start off, Andrew, because I'm really curious. What we're going to do here is we, we are going to actually do some of you guys a favor and you know try to contribute a little bit to the world of cinema. You'll thank and, us later. Yes, you'll thank us in some way. You can send gifts to dot, 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 at How? New Jersey. Yes. But we're going to come up with... A movie idea. We're going to pitch this idea, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to do everybody a favor. Everybody said, you know, that would make a great movie, no matter what it was, or, how, or no matter how you came, it up, came up with it. We're going to pitch you our ideas for a movie, and I'm going to go first. Jack has an idea also, but I'm going to go first, okay. because I was ready first. Sure. All right, my, my movie is a movie for young adults. For kids, perhaps, it's called Peanut Butter Panic. What, Peanut Butter Panic? Peanut Butter Panic. Because you said Peanut Butter Panic for a second. Never mind that. Okay. Peanut Butter Panic. It starts in a world where a young boy is allergic to peanut butter. Oh, 
Would you like this Reese's Peanut Butter Cup? Ah, I'm going to die! Crash cart! Deep! One day he finds out that the peanut butter is not the way it should be. I tell you, there's something wrong with this peanut butter. You're crazy, Steve! (laughs) But soon we will all find out. There's a big shadow looming over the city, tentacles coming out from the grocery store, that he may have been right. Peanut butter panic. (laughs) So, in other words, Detective the Killer Peanut Butter. Yeah, more or less. Okay. Oh, but then we have a sequel called Death by Chocolate, where he teams up with a kid who's allergic to chocolate, and then they and their catchphrase is two two flavors that die well together. <laughs> See, I, you can I, have that one, audience. Anyone yes. who wants to make Peanut Butter Panic and its sequel, mm-hmm. you can uh, just make it. We will collect the royalties yes. later, and <laughs> you're welcome. See, I think this is a clever idea. The only downside might be that... Uh, like, you might have to compete with uh, Clyde with a chance of meatballs, which is, like, all about food. If we didn't compete with anything in life, Jack, we would all just be amoebas. That's probably true. All right, so now it's time for your pitch. Okay. Um, what is the title of your movie? Um, my The title of my movie is called um, uh, uh, In Case uh, Bleep Happens. And um, the movie is uh, about a, a low-level, um, insecure insurance uh, salesman who um, is not very good at his job, but he tries to get through day by day and you know deal with problems with uh, his boss and work. And um, he keeps getting this customer who comes into the office who is a little weird and a little off-kilter. And uh, he soon discovers from this uh, weird person... Uh, in a moment of revelation that um, the uh, his entire city is going to uh, be invaded uh, from under the ground by um, mole men. So can you act out a scene from this movie? Um, basically, uh, here's let's the set scene. the scene. Who, right. wh- who's your character? Um, my character is uh, Nate Mann. Nate Mann. Nate Mann. And is where sitting, is Nate Mann? Nate Mann is sitting at his desk and he's trying to talk on the phone. Uh, hello, I'm I'm trying to sell you some insurance today. Oh, oh, you don't want it? Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Enter Click. in. Uh, enter in. Uh, this young, uh, this little shriveled old man who is four feet tall, named uh, Crispin Skype. I'm and, Crispin Skype. Uh, Wait, get out of here, Crispin. I told you not to come into the office anymore. But I got something important to tell you. Uh, oh, come on. You can't you... ignore me anymore. No, get out of here. here look, here, here's a cookie. Go go away. Okay. But what else was it? What? What else did you want to tell me? Oh, well, have you checked the seismographs lately? How am I supposed to check any seismographs? I'm an insurance salesman. I don't know. All right, so can I'll I... see you tomorrow. Wait, who is that? Let me look up the seismographs on my computer. Oh my god! They're off the charts! What am I supposed to do? I have to alert the governor! And he goes and runs off to the governor. That's another scene. And scene. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully my ideas get a little better, but at least I had a premise. (laughs) Yes, you did certainly have that. Alright, so, movie land people. Movie land people, yes. (laughs) We're going to have to move on uh, and... 
bid you farewell pretty soon. There's but... one more thing we have to do before we leave. We're going to talk about our plans for the upcoming podcast. What yeah. movies are we going to try to watch? Jack, you only saw one movie last week. What are you going to try to watch before we record again? I think that in the next week, uh, well, for one thing, I know that uh, I will be watching uh, the film Do the Right Thing, right? Uh, the Spike Lee joint, uh, and I've seen that many times, but I hope to watch it again. Um, I also hope to get out to the theater to see a documentary called Citizen Four, which is about uh, the Edward Snowden case. All right. And then uh, there's also a horror movie coming out that's supposed to be like one of the best horror movies in recent years from Australia called The Babadook, huh. uh, which is quite a title. And I don't know much about it. All I know is I read nothing but raves about this movie. So hopefully it's kind of like the fresh new horror movie from... A new director. Um, from Australia, no yes, less. Yes, from Australia, no less. Hopefully it's not like Saw. Because right. that's the last time we got uh, a fresh new talent from from Australia. It wasn't that great. Um, right. but, so, and I hope to watch some other movies, and but I can't really think of them off the top of my head. So you're going to be spending a lot of time in the theater. I am poor. So I will be going to my library. Oh, I'm, I'm crying you a river. No, uh, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no, All go, right. go to your libraries. I'm not... like. I make a joke here at Andrew's expense, but your local libraries need your help, and they have so many movies that are for free. Yes, or at I most, mean maybe a quarter. You don't even have to pay for a library card. There's no fee for anything. It's just like the libraries of myth, and <laughs> you just go there, and there are movies on the shelves. Get a movie off the shelf. Find something that you haven't seen. Yes. Uh, I unfortunately am not going to be doing that. I am going to try to watch Transformers: Dark of the Moon. Oh, poor man. Yeah, I know. And but I have to do it. I feel like I it's kind of like a marathon. Yeah. You got to do it what if you don't like it. And See, normally fine and I could talk about it with authority. I would be interested in that. I mean, I've seen the first two Transformers films. Yeah, so have um, I. I kind of suffered through them, or especially the second one, which I still think is one of the worst films ever. Um <laughs> but uh I mean, I'd be curious to see what you think of it, though, because... Oh, don't worry. I'll have plenty to say. I'm sure you will. I mean, I have no problem, though, leaving a franchise if it really just makes me have no hope. Right. The other thing I'm trying going to try to do is watch a movie that I own that I just want to watch again. I want to just watch Sweet Sleeping Beauty again on Blu-ray. Okay. And uh, I just want to look at those images and just soak them in. Uh, and well, then I'm going to... You can... You can, you can uh, Get your. Uh, uh, I was gonna say, so what, what? What is it that you put into a pool that you can float on? Water. Thank you. Well, no, the thing that you could like inflate something and put it on the. Water. Where are you going with this, Jack? The point is, you're gonna be in a pool of Sleeping Beauty, and you're gonna be floating as if you're. That's like, the plan. The yes. So that's your idea, and uh, I, I'll be... But also to... I have a giant list of movies i got to work through. I'll try to watch some more silent films like Haxon yes. and... Mm -hmm. uh, what's that other one? Yeah, and, and the other one. Yeah, and, uh, I know what you mean. I mean, the next month, actually, I um, have a goal that I'm going to try to reach. Um, on my IMDb account, I've been writing reviews there for literally half of my life. <laughs> and uh you know if i because i started there when i was 15 and now i'm 30 um and you know over time you know not not all of them are for movies there are some reviews here and there that are for like maybe tv or other things but 
by this point, I am 10 reviews away from hitting 4,000. So wow. that's uh, <laughs> that's what happens when you spend half your life in this industry. Yes, and I mean, well, I actually would have hit that marker already, but I, uh, I then actually because I started a blog, then that went off into another arena. So in the next month, before the end of the year, and I know I can do it pretty easily, but I want them to try to be ten movies that I haven't seen that I can write for IMDb, and I will have the big four thousand. All right, I'll that's pretty like, sweet. I'll be like a baseball player who keeps at the game until he hits that average. Yeah. All right. Well, All right. ladies and gentlemen, we have a ton of work to get doing, so we're going to leave you now. Uh, this is Andrew. This is Jack. And let me remind you before you leave that the wages of cinema is death. We will see you next time. <laughs> Adios.